This is the Final Whistle podcast from the Wrexham AFC media team. Hello, I'm Mark Griffiths and welcome to another Ask Wrexham podcast. Of course, the hashtag ASKWXM that we use when we're doing our commentaries on Wrexham player to allow you to get in touch and ask questions or comment on the game. And it's become so much fun that we've decided that we should do it for an extra hour or so during the week. So, here we are. Ask Wrexham, first question, and I think we've got a good batch today that really showed the, the range of our support. There some from brand new fans and some from old, old stages like me, interested just in general takes about the team. So, Cheryl Moore starts off and asks, please help a new Canadian fan understand how the Sunderland game today in the FA Cup could finish in a draw. Though it was an elimination process. So what happens to these two teams now? Well, well, yes, Cheryl, you're quite right. And I do also appreciate that up to a point that in North American sports, the uh, the, the, the the drawn game is, is, is a bit of an anomaly. We'll talk a bit about that again in, in a little bit. Um, well, you're quite right. Uh, what happens is there'll be a replay. So Wrexham will play Sheffield United on Tuesday night. There will be conclusion to that so we will know on Tuesday night who goes through that is a fairly recent development quite frankly um, because it used to be that games would just keep playing replay 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 until they were decided um, <laughs> and as you can imagine clubs don't like that because it means your fixtures get completely congested also and this is the real thing which has you know affected the replays and made them less common is that the big teams now play more games in Europe and they are extremely um, lucrative. So because of that, they want fewer replays and fewer cup competitions and more straight knockouts on the day. So the FA Cup only has one replay now. And uh, in the past we would have more. I remember when I was a kid, Wrexham... Drawing with Chelsea. Chelsea were not a stronger team then. Didn't have the money that behind them they do now. Wrexham drew with Chelsea at Chelsea in the Cup. And then the draw was made and we had Liverpool. The winners had Liverpool at home in the next round. Ooh, I was excited. That's the Liverpool, the best team in the world then. Um, replays at the race course. Still a draw. So it went to extra time. Still a draw, and so in those days you keep going. So they had to toss a coin to decide where the next replay would be played. Wrexham won the toss, I was delighted, and we got battered 4 0. So we didn't get to play Liverpool. Uh, but that, yeah, that's how it used to be. You just keep going, keep going, keep going. And they would, they would eventually reach a crisis point if there were like about four or five games where they would say, okay, then we'll go to penalties after this one. But yeah, generally that's the case. Um, next up is oh background father daniel remind me what's the infraction and punishments when you're the last defender and you cynically take out the attacking player right so the perhaps strangely named professional foul uh, where you take one for the team and send and foul somebody and you may well get sent off in order to stop the other side from scoring now i'll go back a little bit with this this was one of the main reasons this was brought in, certainly in Britain, was a very famous foul, which I'll show you in a moment, in the FA Cup final. And I want to say 1980, 
but I could be wrong. Um, Arsenal against West Ham. West Ham were the country's favourites because Arsenal were a very strong side. West Ham were in what is now the Championship. And West Ham also picked a 17-year-old, Paul Allen, who at the time was the youngest player ever to play in a cup final. And what a fairy tale it would have been. It's nil-nil. He breaks through and he's got a chance to score and win the cup for West Ham. But Arsenal's big, dirty centre-back, Willie Young, comes up and just chops him. And it's the classic professional foul. There is nothing to stop him from going through and shooting. And Young does not try and play the ball. He just clobbers him. And so it wasn't immediate, but that certainly added to the pressure to change the rules. So that a foul like that, so a foul that denies a goal-scoring opportunity, is a direct red card. So here's that foul coming up now. So West Ham have the ball. Oh, Trevor Brooking in midfield. Goodness, and here's Allen. He bursts through. He's gonna. He's got a great chance. So bang, just took him out. No attempt to play the ball. And so that that was a yellow card, as you can see there. But the rules were changed, and certainly in Britain, I think we draw it back to that. Here's another beauty from the World Cup in 2010. Ball bobbles around, handled on the line by the Uruguay striker Luis Suarez. Ghana. The team they're playing against, as you can see there, handball. So that's definitely a goal if he doesn't handle it. So he gets the red card and it's a penalty. That rule is still in a, uh, still applies, or we'll talk in a moment about changes to it. This is the last minute of extra time to go through to the semi-finals of the World Cup. And Asamojan misses it. Oh, to the delight of the centre Suarez. <laughs> Suarez was a villain in Britain, but not so much uh, in, in Uruguay because they won the penalty. Now. How about this? Champion, European Championship final. Abel Xavier of Portugal saving a shot by Trezeguet on the line. And so again, if he hadn't handled it, that's a goal. As you'll see from this angle, much better. So, he is sent off. And it's a penalty, which Zinedine Zidane scores. And France win the European Championship. Um, so... That's the concept. You deny a chance for a goal by fouling or by handling on the line. Um, if you do that, right, now then, it's a one-match ban in Britain. So if you do that, you will get uh, a one-game ban because it's not violent play. As we'll get to in a little bit, a violent foul where you just try, you, know, you may hurt somebody, that's a three-match ban. So this one is seen as a sort of technical infraction. There is a little subtle alteration made to the rules that you need to be aware of. Seems to me quite a lot of people aren't aware of this. And I'm talking about commentators that you see on television getting confused. It used to be what they called triple jeopardy. That if you did, if you made a foul in the penalty area, denied a chance to score you'd sort of get a triple punishment because there'd be a penalty and there'd be a red card and there'd be a suspension. And so they decided to change the rules. So basically, if you're in the penalty area and you and it's with your foot, so you're trying to make a tackle for the ball, you can't be sent off unless it's a violent tackle. That would have been a red card anywhere on the pitch. So do you see that that takes away the, pen, the punishment of a red card and the punishment of a... Uh, suspension. Obviously, if it's a second yellow card, you'd be sent off. But the idea was that, you know, if somebody genuinely tries to make a tackle to win the ball, um, mistimes it, they don't deserve to be sent off for denying the chance, but it is a penalty. However, if the, it's not an attempt to play the ball, it's still a straight red. So those two handballs 
Or to take another example, when the Coventry player got sent off against Wrexham for handling the ball when it was going on target, that's still a red card. And if you grab hold of someone's shirt when they've got a chance to score, that's still a red card because you're not attempting to legally play the ball. But if you attempt to legally play the ball in the box and a penalty is given, it can't be a red card for a professional foul. Does that make sense? What is it? What's the infraction and punishment with the last defender? Now, that's the other one. Now, the other thing I want to say, and it was an interesting one, is why wasn't there a red card on Sunday for John Egan, the Sheffield United centre-back, at the end of the first half, when Mullen burst straight past him? For me, that looked like a straight red card. Mullen, for me, was in on goal and was going to get a shot off. He, he was only a step outside the box. He was right down the middle. Egan was the last defender, the phrase I tend to use about you know, whether you should get sent off. There was another centre-back, a defender nearby. And I wonder if the ref felt, and this is sort of the basis they go on, he could come round and cover. Therefore, he might deny the goal-scoring opportunity. I really, I challenge you to look at that and imagine the scenario where Egan doesn't trip Mullen, but the other guy gets the Mullen. I mean, that's not going to happen. But I do sometimes feel the decisions are made more on a sort of theoretical scenario, or oh, that looks quite close, so I won't give it, rather than the actual reality of, will it be a chance to score? The, the grounds on which I... I Okay, I think it's a red card, but the grounds on which I argue against myself is the rules do say you should be in control of the ball. Now, I think that's... You know, so if if you're not in control of the ball, the foul on you can't be a professional foul because you wouldn't be getting that shot off. So does Mullen knock the ball a little bit too far ahead of himself? Would he have not had a goal scoring chance when he got to it? I I think not, but that's the only grounds on which I can justify not giving a red card. Obviously, sometimes you've got to look at that in control argument and and ask yourself, you know, I mean. Did, did get there eventually. The ball's flicked up in the air. It's still under control. I said, I don't know. Anyway, I think that's a red card myself. But well, I, I, I well, no, I'm not going to say people are entitled to their own opinion. It's only one opinion that matters, and that's mine. End of. Good night. Next question. Um, <laughs> spitball idea is now regular Ask Wrexham correspondent. Great change of name. And that third answer there, how did the race score squeeze in 35,000 for an FA Cup game against Man United? Yeah, exactly. At the moment, our capacity is about 10,000. Build a big cop behind the goal. It'll go to 15,500. How the heck do we get 35,000 in in 1957 when we played Manchester United? I'll tell you how. They weren't as worried about health and safety in those days. That's a big part of it. Um, there was much more of an attitude of keep cramming them in until <laughs> until no one else is outside. Um, and maybe that's a slight simplification. There were disasters in British football before then involving uh, crowds that were too large. Although, by the same token, the first ever game at Wembley, the FA Cup final 1921, is famous as the White Horse final. And people talk, you know, this is revered, this idea that supposedly around 200,000 got into Wembley, which should have held, in those days, probably around 120. And they're all they're all around the actual touchline. They've come up onto the grass. And a, a policeman, a white horse, has to go around to make sure they don't go on the pitch. You know, so, sometimes we mythologise things that could have led to a disaster, let's be honest. Um, as for that game... Well, firstly, yeah, 
<laughs> you just let people keep coming in. The other answer, less facetiously, is uh, that you know it, it it was a bigger place then, if you will. Look at the cop. Uh, that was well more of a mound then than those steps, perhaps, but was all standing. You'll fit more people in all standing than all than seating. Um, so there's also that there was a lot more standing around the grounds around than it used to be. Even if you look at the current layouts, the the the, the seated bottom tier of the Wrexham Lager Stand and the seated bottom tier at the tech end used to be all standing. So you'd get more in. So it's a combination of, frankly, I don't think they were as worried about health and safety. I don't think they were as worried about capacities of crowds. Um, I, I, and also, the layout was a little different. And so, yes, they they, they, they squeezed them all in. Uh, having a look at beer, bear, beer's question here. Um, for the replay at Sheffield, do Wrexham go for the win in the replay, seeing how well the squad did against Sheffield United? Or do we play the reserves to protect players for the league promotion or something else? I think it's a great question, that, because I think it goes to the heart of how people perceive football. Right, I'll give I'll give my straight answer first, and I'll explain what I mean. Oh, I think we go absolute full strength and we go for it. I don't think there's any ways about it. This is a chance for glory. Win this, we're in the last 16 of the FA Cup. That's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> and a brilliant achievement. And we get to play Spurs at home, which is an unbelievable uh, incentive. Oh, going back to that first question as well, by the way, um, saying about replays, because of the big club's desire to you know, prioritise Europe and maybe squeeze out some of the fixtures, rather bizarrely, in my mind, at the fifth round of the Cup, I believe, won't have replays. I find it odd that a competition have different rules at different stages, but the fact is, as I understand it, the fifth round will be played in midweek and will be decided on the day. So there won't be replays for the fifth round, which, again, I find a little odd, but never mind. So, yeah, I, I absolutely think Wrexham go for it. I don't think there's much doubt about that. Now, the, the, thing it, the, the deeper subject it raises that I'd like to mention is just that I think there's a little bit of a difference in perception between fans and managers about how to make these decisions. I, I think fans naturally prioritise the league. and yeah, I do. That is the number one priority. Please don't get me wrong. The club number one priority is the league. No question. We're not going to win the FA Cup. Um, but having said that, the idea of rotation, I think, is different in a manager's mind. I don't think managers tend to completely giveaway a tournament. So I, I'd met all managers have different opinions. Um, I'm, I'm quite sure Parkinson, when we knocked out the FA Trophy at Altrincham, picked a team he felt could do the job. Now, admittedly, he rested everyone. I think that was necessary because the Coventry game and the Bromley game took a lot out of them. And I think having a breather was important. But I also feel that he felt that that team was strong enough to, to win. And the fact that Altrincham needed a deflected goal in the last minute to stop us from winning suggests he was probably right. So I do think that calculation comes in more. Um, fans tend to be more, oh, FA Cup, FA Trophy, let's not worry about the league's most important thing. I'm not disagreeing with that, but I think the degree to which you would prioritise it might be slightly different. It's peculiar with Wrexham because we really are in a situation. We've got to get out of the National League, not only because it's a 
it hurts that we're that low in the, the pyramid, but also because, let's be honest, the takeover, the owners need us to get up and get up soon, simply to keep that momentum going, don't we? I mean, I, I'm not for a second suggesting Rob and Ryan aren't in it for the long term, but, you know, I mean, you're making these investments, you need to get out of this league. Once we get out of this league, things start to blossom, but we have to get out of it. So, yeah, I agree, it is an absolute priority. But look at the international coverage we're getting and that really is the key thing for Rob and Ryan as well, isn't it? That they, they want us to be known uh, so they can capitalise upon uh, you know, the, the other elements that will make us money. And as I've seen in a moment, financial fair play comes into this. So we, we getting through and playing Tottenham will mean a lot in terms of worldwide uh, eyes on us as well. Now, Al Hanna says he was expecting Harry Lennon to step up to centre-back because of the injuries we had on Sunday. But it seems that we went out and purchased one. We certainly did. Who is Owen O'Connell? How does he fit in the squad? Will he bring anything extra of value to the centre-back position? And then also, another question about O'Connell. Uh, Chris Firmston saying that, I notice O'Connell's not played for Charlton in the FA Cup, so should not be cup ties and available for the replay. For overseas fans, if you sign a player who's played for an FA Cup game for the side he comes from, then he's cup-tied and not allowed to play. I'll just mention that one first quickly, because there's a weird new technicality. Uh, Chris is absolutely right. If you've previously played for a team in a competition, you're not allowed to play for another team in that competition, except league games, because the league is continuous. I mean, if you did that, the moment a player's been picked in a match, they couldn't play again for anybody else. Um, and also European matches. You're allowed, as we've seen happening this week if you're in the champions league you're allowed to make three changes to your registered squad and they can be players who've played previously chelsea's new players who they've registered of all previously played in the champions league uh, this season however the fa cup has brought in a new little wrinkle they say they're now saying okay quite rightly o'connell as chris says has not played for charlton so he's not cup ties but you have to be registered with the club before the first match of a round to play in that round. So as O'Connell was signed after the Sheffield United game, he's not allowed to play in that replay. Does that make sense? So when the first game is played in the FA Cup now, this is a new introduction, when the first game is played, if a player isn't in your squad then, he can't be in it for the replay. Something of a shame for O'Connell. But uh, yeah, so but on a technicality, he actually can't play. But if we win, he would be able to play against Spurs. Al Hanna's point, if I just remind myself going back to it, um, who is he? Well, he's an experienced centre-back. He started off with Celtic, so that's a very big club, and he did make some Champions League appearances for them, although not he didn't make a regular appearances for them at all. I, I worked out the other day, I can't remember. He's played about six or seven games for Celtic. He's then come south of the border, and he's you know he's at clubs like Charlton. He's been doing well in the lower divisions. This is another signing that fits our uh, blueprint of signing players who are from the Football League and are of Football League quality. So this is another impressive signing. He is a big, strong centre-back, but he's also good with the ball at his feet. So again, for those roles we have on the sides of the centre-backs, you know, who we want to play a bit more football and come forwards while toes are sticks in the middle, he fits that as well. I strongly suspect that this is a player we were looking at to sign in the summer, uh, should we get promoted in order to boost our quality 
And because of the misfortune of the two players, we've managed to do that deal now, I strongly suspect. So, yes, it, it's an exciting signing. How does he fit in the squad? I mean, he certainly adds depth at centre-back. You would assume we'll be using him a lot with Tunnicliffe and Hayden out, but then he'll be a contender for a regular spot. And it is intriguing to look at that strength of depth. Now, three centre-backs we usually play. Toza, O'Connell, Hayden and Tunnicliffe would all expect to be regulars in the Football League. Clueth, as he keeps showing in the cup ties, is a magnificent prospect. There's fantastic strength and depth. And, as well, I, I, Harry Lennon... As I've said previously in Ask Wrexham, is a very talented player. We've given him a contract because we want to get him a chance to, to get to fitness and show what he can do. And Scott Butler has looked impressive when he's coming as well. And we've also got young lads like Ryan Austin and Adam James. So, fair play. Daniel Davis, we've got a lot of cover in those sort of positions. So, very interesting. In terms of bringing extra values to centre-back position, though, I mean, the answers are resounding. Yes, this is not a young lad or a squad player that he's brought in. This is a player who will expect to come in and make a difference to the team. Um, a Fennel, I love this, says, I'm new to this. Please come up with a newcomer's guide to football etiquette. I really want to come to Wrexham for a game. Know the chance, culture and pub etiquette. Brilliant. Now then, I, I, I'm going to give an overview, a quick overview, but I do think a lot, there were a lot of replies to this and they were brilliant. And I think in a way, a written reply is better than this. Maybe we should start some sort of thread up um, just to get tips. Maybe you already have a fennel. Um, I mean, that, that will say, though, the bottom line is you're going to be welcome. <laughs> I know that sounds daft. Um, and I know why I'll argue against myself in a second in terms of needing to see that. But you don't have to follow any rules. Well, you know, except the law. But, you know, the plan is to come and enjoy yourself. You'll get a good welcome from us, I promise you. Um, however, I agree. When I go to a football match in Europe, uh, I like to have a bit of background and understanding and get it to get the full value out of the experience. So, OK. Um, <clears throat> big, big tradition to go into a pub before the match, have a couple of pints. Um generally there will be home and away pubs and the police might well designate an away pub or places that are acceptable or the away clubs might say so or there are some good websites that just say these clubs these pubs are willing to take away fans i mean i can't help thinking oh i feel bad picking a team up what the hell because probably this happens everywhere halifax you notice some pubs around halifax they are definitely halifax town pubs you don't want to go into those in a wrexham shirt um, and there are plenty of pubs that I've been in over the years, plenty, the vast majority, because most fans are absolutely decent, where they're, they're cool about it. There'll be people there in the other team shirts, you go in, in your shirt, there is no issue, you might end up chatting to them. But they're also definite, shall we say, hometown club pubs that you don't want to go in. So I would. that's probably something worth research if you went to an away game um, at Wrexham. You'd be fine anywhere. I mean, the turf is the obvious place to go, being right next to it. But then my screen halls across the roads, and that's somewhere that lots of people go for their pre-match or going into town beforehand. It's about, what, 10-minute walk from the town up the hill to the ground. Uh, so, you know, in that respect, do it. Uh, certainly the turf and my screen are going to be very footy-orientated. There's a Plaskoch as well, which is just around the corner from the ground, right behind it. Um, I genuinely don't know what, that's like pre-match. It'd certainly be acceptable. You know I mean? It's not like you're dodgy. <laughs> that's where all the away fans hang out looking to strike. Um, but I don't know 
whether they make much of the pre-match atmosphere. Um, other people are more better placed because I've got to get in early, set up equipment and stuff. I rarely get to, to, to have a pint before a game experience. In fact, pretty much never, to be honest with you. The chance, again, that's there's some nice threads already starting up. So have a good look around. You know, Google Wrexham chance. Have a look on social media. People are starting to do that, that sort of thing. The culture. Um, well, I do talk about pies quite a bit. And I would say the halftime. The halftime pie, not really a pork pie. I've got, to, I've got to make a confession. The pork pie is more something people kept bringing and we just kept talking about them. Um, but a sort of, you know, a, a meat pie of some description at halftime tends to be a, a common thing or bring it in. And I do accept that cultures are very different around football clubs. In Spain, everybody will turn up with um, their own sandwiches wrapped in tin foil, that's like a big Spanish thing that they all just do that and then eat theirs at half time. And also pumpkin seeds. Uh, they sell big bags of pumpkin seeds outside the grounds, and you just sit there and munch through them and spit the husks onto the floor, which is pretty gross. I once had a bloke accidentally spit a husk onto me at a Real Madrid match. He was a big lad, so I didn't argue about it. He just stared at me and grunted. And I thought, I think I'll leave this. He looks like he'd take my head off my shoulders. Um, so you do get those interesting cultural things. Um, German football is a wonderful experience. I know you're not asking this, but just to say for fans, because they have a culture of, well, in Germany in general, they appreciate good beer and good sausages. And that comes together in a football match and makes an ideal weekend away. Believe me, my son and I have done it a lot of times. It's great fun. Um, but yeah, in Britain, I would say pie and a pint is probably the, the culture in that respect. Um, don't cheer the other side. <laughs> you know, don't get me wrong. I can appreciate other side's talents and qualities. But don't go clapping them unless everyone else does. For example, when Dover scored that amazing first goal against us. There was an element of them being patronising then, I think, because I don't think we really felt under threat. So the Wrexham fans all applauded this astonishing goal. Little did we know, it was just, it was lighting um, the fuse on an unbelievable football match. But, um, yeah. And, oh, I'll tell you something football fans are snobby about, and you don't, you'd never see it at Wrexham, but we did see it on Sunday. Half and half scarves. Right, so a scarf that has Wrexham on one half and Sheffield United on the other and the date of the game. Now, that might be a nice souvenir to get if, the, if you go to a big game and you see those. And I, I'm not saying don't get one, but I'm saying don't show it off much because a lot of people... Well, I say that, you'll be fine. No one's going to be funny with you. People, football fans don't tend to like them. They tend to see it as, you've got to have a team. <laughs> you don't want the other team on you. You get, you get all snarky stuff on social media about those sort of things. Yeah, we'll have to think. There's lots more stuff. Badges. Maybe that's not a big thing. When I was a kid, badges were a big thing. Oh, those of you who are watching, I found a few of my old badges in me. My dad's out. Steve Fox, my hero when I was a kid in the early 80s. He's a winger. He's a sort of exciting player who... Uh, he's sort of blue, hot and cold. But when he was hot, he was exciting to watch. So, you know, badges used to be a big thing. I don't know if they are so much now. Um... Some people collect them. Uh, you know, what else? No, oh, I'm gonna have to come back to this. I like it. Give some ideas in the comments. That's my that's my theory. But a fennel, I hope you do get over. I'd love to meet you when you do. Right then, drag speak. Oh, I don't laugh. Or National League doesn't have strict financial fair play. Correct. 
How would those FFP rules in League 2 affect the running of Wrexham AFC? Brilliant question. Now, the thing, the, the complication in answering this question is what will those rules be when we go up? Because there's a lot of talk that they'll be changed. The current rules in the Football League are you've got to submit your accounts in March. There's got They will then calculate a realistic budget and you have to sort of, you know, show that you can keep within that. But despite that, you're allowed an overspend, and weirdly, because that's obviously looking at your means, um, it's a hard and fast figure. You're you're allowed to go from five to thirteen million into debt, or to overspend in the course of three years. So, you know, you, you've you've definitely got scope for manoeuvre, um, capital projects don't count in terms of infrastructure projects building a cop will not go into that so if you spend money on your infrastructure that's exempt from that sort of measurement it's purely things like transfers things like um wages of players that that sort of thing is what it's emphasizing towards and the idea of it is to stop clubs going out of business and being responsible um but how would that if it was that how would that affect us i think we'd be okay with that um the idea like i said is is what's the club's means without injections from the owners if you will so they'd look at how the business works now we've done well because thanks to our owners we get ridiculous sponsorship deals compared to what clubs at our level would do so you look at how sustainable we are well have a look at the tiktok deal because that's going to be worth one hell of a lot more than any clubs that are on in League One, League Two, and the National League. I mean, and although a back of shirt deal is not as lucrative, and I don't have the figures, but I mean, Expedia surely are going to be giving, paying a, a decent whack for us. You know, so we've got big companies, Aviation Gen, all these companies that we're getting sponsored from will be giving us a huge advantage. The fact that we're constantly selling out the ground is going to give us a huge advantage. And the fact that that capacity will be improved, increased by more than 50% will also help us enormously. So, I mean, this is the wonderful thing about the takeover. They are clearly looking to build long-term and they are building in ways that we naturally bring revenue in without asking the owners for a handout. Not that they're not willing to give a handout, but if all they did was give us handouts, we'd be on a financial road to disaster because when they left we suddenly have lots of responsibilities financially and we wouldn't be able to see them off and we would well we collapse wouldn't we financially um so they're building it in that we, the, i mean this is fascinating isn't it they are their fame and their influence is currency and they're using that to draw in currency to try and make the model sustainable and the documentary as well of course will be money coming in which is uh, going to be added into that so we're probably in a very strong position as the rules currently stand. There's a lot of talk, and they did try and do that this year, but it, it failed under appeal in court. There's a lot of talk about bringing in um, salary caps, and there's disagreements about how that can be done, whether it would be a hard cap, i.e. there's just a figure, and every team in that division has got to stick to it, or a soft cap, where you take those figures that each club put in and then you work out what they can afford to pay. Now, there's a lot of arguments about this. I mean, a hard cap would probably disadvantage big clubs because you might have rich owners, you might... 
club like Sunderland who dropped down the divisions until they've started to come back up again. You know, they they were in League One, but they get massive crowds. You know, clubs like those would be disadvantaged because they couldn't take full potential, the full advantage of their financial potential. Um, we might gloriously be in that position where we'd be drawing in a lot of money and wanting to spend it. Um, the soft cap seems more logical in that it matches a club to its means. Although, you know, smaller clubs might argue, well, that's not fair because, you know, we'll never be able to have that sort of ability to attract in investment or money and so we'll never be able to compete. I can see that point, but I can also see how that kind of is how sport and football works. So, I don't know. So there you are, another misleading but overcomplicated answer. Uh, Ryan Gayer was talking about Sheffield United's game and said how brilliant it was, which brought him back to the question, uh, how did we end up stuck in the National League for so long? Well, I'll give you a, a very straight answer to that. That is a simple one. We go into administration in 2004. At that point, we're in League One. The reason we go into administration is, to, as I've explained in previous podcasts, to save the club. The owner of the club um, was making noises that he was going to close down. He wanted to build on the racecourse and he hurriedly resigned in anger in a board meeting, which gave an opportunity for the two board members who were actual Wrexham fans to jump in by putting us into administration which is a, a process which is done in order to protect businesses who are in danger of going out of business completely, they took control of the club away from him. And that was how we were able to save ourselves. Now, unfortunately for us, some clubs have been going to administration for a different reason. If you go into administration, you have to make a deal on how much of your debts you can pay off. And some clubs would overspend, then go into administration, have no penalty against them, but then would be saying, well, we can only afford to pay... 20% of our debts, which meant that, well, to, to give the two extreme examples, football clubs would sell a player for a million pounds but only get 200,000 for him. And then the other side of the coin, and it's just always examples seems to be given, St. John's Ambulance. So, voluntary, voluntary group who provides medical emergency first aid for fans or players, they get a fee because they are, I shoot, they're a registered charity. And the clubs would be screwing them over as well. They'd give them 20% of their fee. So you can see how there was a need to do something about that. The frustrating thing is, the one what the Football League did was say there's going to be a penalty. Then it was 10 points, now it's 15. So you lose those points. And poor old Wrexham, who didn't go into administration for those reasons, were the first team to go into administration after they passed that rule. So we were fined 10 points, even though we appealed, saying... We, we, we're not trying to cheat here. <laughs> we, we clearly look at the state of our finances. We are not bringing in loads of players. We did this to save the club. And I'm re really sad that the Football League weren't sensible enough to say, yeah, this is an exception. But I think instead their attitude was, if we bring this rule in and then the first team that, that breaks that rule gets away with it, we'll look stupid. Um, I think they should have taken the broader picture. Now, Wrexham finished the season five points above relegation. Minus 10. So we were relegated by five points. If that all hadn't happened, 
Or if a football league had said, fair enough, I don't think we'd have got anywhere near the National League. I think we'd have stayed in League One and we'd have continued to be there. Um, but as it was, we went down. Then we had more ownership problems. We went down again. Although, to be fair, it wasn't just that. Maybe I'm wrong to suggest that. But then, like I said, the start of our time in the National League, again, we had serious financial problems. Um, we nearly got out quite quickly, but didn't. We got to the point, as I'm sure you're aware, and showed on the Welcome to Wrexham, where fans had to raise, what, £150,000 in about one day, or the club would have been kicked out of the National League and probably would have gone out of existence. So we did have problems at the start. The other part of it was that we had overspent on players. I'm not going to say the theories why, because some of them maybe are dubious in terms of why we spent that money. Um, but as a result, we then, when the owner left and the fans took over, the fans had inherited a massive debt and had to try and run things sensibly, fiscally. And by trying to run a break-even model, it meant we had the advantage of being a club that always got amongst the biggest crowds in the division. But then a team like Fleetwood, like Crawley, like Forest Green would come along with rich owners who were throwing money at them and we couldn't compete with that. And so it became much more difficult for us trying to balance the budget to put together squads that could get out of the National League. That's the honest truth of the matter. Um, some people complained about the trust for that attitude. I've got to say, I think they were right because they protected the club. It was really nice to have you know, a decade under them where we weren't worried about whether I'd wake up in the morning and the club's been closed down because that was, you know, that was how it felt for the 10 years before that. And I think people need to remember that as context before complaining about the trust not gambling and bringing in players that we couldn't obviously afford. So I think that should be remembered. But that's why, really, Brian, it comes from that 10-point penalty and then the, the financial issues that we had and then the way to get out of those financial issues by having sensible balancing of the budget really is why we didn't get back out again. It's got to be said as well, if we hadn't had that sensible attitude to balance in the budget, Robin Ryan probably would have looked elsewhere because, you know, you pay £2 million in. Well, they bought the club and then they put the £2 million in immediately as capital and that all was used to help the club. Whereas if they bought a club with a million pounds of debt, they'd only be putting a million in, wouldn't they? Because half their money would be just clearing existing debt. So that was a big part why in the end they came. Every story has a happy ending. Apart from, you know, Titanic didn't end that well, did it, really? I would argue. Spoiler alert, in case you haven't seen the film, they, they might they might get to New York. Sheesh. Then Emrys Bertine, whose name I will say quickly because I still can't work out how to say it. Uh, so many injuries here, it feels like it's going to break 10 minutes. That was in the Sheffield United game. What's the most injury time you've ever seen? Well, I answered this question at the time, but I didn't have the figures to hand. So a quick answer for you. Um, I'm not sure I understand. Oh, Siri doesn't understand. Don't worry, I've got it. I'll just explain to him. We've got Mullin, Super Mullin. I just don't think you understand. I wish I hadn't done that. I need to edit that out, but I can't be bothered. Um, two seasons ago, we played Bromley away, and a horrible injury 
happens. Rob Lainton, it was accidental, but going down and saving at a striker's feet, he got kicked in the head. A complete accident, but it was horrific. The game was stopped for a long, long time. The players went off the pitch. Uh, ambulance had to come on to, to get him onto the pitch. Luckily, the hospital was nearby. And equally luckily, although it was a really bad head injury, he was actually able to travel home that night. Phew. But good job that hospital was so close by and good job that Bromley was so quick in acting. Um, so when we came back out to play, it was during the first half that, so we'd lost a lot of time. And when the board went up, it said plus 25. And we let a goal in, actually, in the 10th minute of added time, uh, which at the time felt like a peculiarity with the last World Cup makes it feel like it might become more normal. But yeah, that's the most definitely that I've ever seen. Football 366 um, has a question about the FA Cup. Is it fair for smaller teams to be playing larger clubs during the transfer window? Not that it would happen, but what if a scout decided on one of our players? And also Rollin Wyckoff, just wondering if we have some players that do well against Sheffield United, do we risk having them poached by league teams? Well, I mean, these questions are asked during the transfer window. Obviously, it's now closed, but I would have given the same answer then. That's definitely true. Absolutely. Players do well in big matches and they get snaffled. Absolutely correct. I don't think there was much danger with us because we got our players on long-term contracts mostly. So you're going to have to pay through the nose. You know, the, the less time left in the contract, the less you have to pay for a player. And also, I mean, these players, they're well paid. They're having a great time and they are worshipped. And they're on a documentary and their team's doing really, really well. And the worship they get from the fans and the atmosphere at our matches, these are all factors to keep you with us. Plus the fact that as we have money now, we don't have to accept offers just because they're a lot of money. Now, don't get me wrong, if a player's desperate to leave, there are ways and means that they could force a move, essentially by downing tools and saying, I want to go. But um, I don't detect that's really happening at Wrexham. There's many players, any players necessarily who would do that. It would obviously depend on what offer you get. You know, if Barcelona come in, you might consider it. But, I mean, look at Altrincham, for example. They've lost Ryan Malarkey, who's one of their key players, even though they've given him an extension on his contract. He's gone to Rochdale, who are bottom of the league above, so there's a fair chance he'd be back down at our level in a side that's struggling. Look, look what's happened with Scunthorpe this season. Look what's happened with Oldham this season. And yet he took the offer... Um, and Altrincham weren't really in a position to stand in his way because they, they, you know, they, they don't generate a lot of revenue, so they couldn't do much about it. Whereas we are in a position to say, well, if you want to buy a player, all right, make an offer, but it'll have to be a good offer because we're not giving players away, and then those players might just be very happy with us, quite frankly. So yeah, um, definitely a risk, definitely a possibility. It definitely happens. I don't think Wrexham are at risk from it though. I mean, also, scouting is more sophisticated than it used to be. It used to be a common thing that a player would catch the eye in a big match and get a big move, and often they'd fail because they hadn't been scouted properly. Some just seen perform well in a big game, but that might have been the performance of their lifetime. There's lots of examples as well, thinking that the World Cup's been mid-season this year, of players having brilliant tournaments, so big clubs signed them, but then it turns out they just had a purple patch for a couple of weeks. You know, tournament football's different. You hit, hit your stride. You get confidence at the right time and you can massively outperform yourself. And there's loads of examples of expensive failures because clubs said, that guy was great in the World Cup. Um, and then they don't turn out to be so great. Now teams tend to scout more. They tend to have a broader knowledge and they tend to know already the players they're interested in. I suspect, like I said, that was the case of O'Connell 
I suspect O'Connell was a player we've been watching for a long time and we've got a lot of interest in and the circumstances now maybe pushed forwards the deal um, that we may have looked to strike in the summer. Um, but, yeah, because of that, I'd say that surely clubs who know what we're like, we're very high profile, surely they know what capabilities our players have got. Maybe it could be these days the sort of thing, the icing on the cake to make you think he is good. Now I've seen him against Sheffield United, but I think more, teams are more organised now. Uh, you'd be surprised, North American fans, the influence that uh, Moneyball, as a concept, has had on British football. People are fascinated by that. And uh, right, oh sorry, Joel Proud. In a situation where a club loses two starters and defence, two short days before the transfer window closes, what are the team's options to bring in reinforcements? Well, in Wrexham's case, luckily, we don't have a transfer window to deal with. And you may not have heard me mentioning it earlier in the season, but until this season, we were the only club in the National League with a transfer window uh, because we were administered by the Welsh FA. And so everyone else could buy players whenever they wanted, and we couldn't. Now we can buy players whenever we want. So we are not unencumbered. Uh, we are unencumbered, beg your pardon. Just as a point of interest, though, if we go up, you know, Football League, Premier League teams do have the transfer window. And if that does happen, that sort of thing do happen, well, you've got two days to scramble and try and bring someone in if you feel like you have to. So, yeah, it's an emergency situation. Likewise, you know, imagine, imagine this. You've got a star player and somebody bigger wants him. So you play hardball. A club's offering money. You say no because you know the transfer deadline is close and you know that that club, if they're desperate for him, will have to bid more and more and more. So, yeah, at the end, you may make a killing. In the end, late on the last day of the transfer window, that club offers you a crazy amount of money. You say, right, OK, fine, you can have him. You've not got much time left to get a replacement, have you? All that lovely money's burning a hole in your pocket till the summer unless you already have something lined up or you can act incredibly quickly. And we know in all forms of life, if you rush into big decisions, you can make mistakes. So, yeah, basically, Joel, in our situation as it stands now, there is no rush. But in terms of the situation that Football League and Premier League teams have, yeah, well, it's an emergency situation. Sometimes teams will fail to replace players who get injured or fail to replace players they sell at the last minute. They've got to put up with that for the last part of the season. Um, I like this one, and I also like the name. Chicago Squeaky Bum Time says, Did Phil Parkinson have a reputation at Bradford, Bolton, etc. for reckless attacking football? 4-3 and 3-3 in the National League. Other teams aren't good enough to exploit. Um, when the USNT, that's a United States men's national team, plays like this, we get called naive. This is a wonderful question for so many reasons. Um, I think a lot of people felt his reputation coming to us was that he was maybe a little defensive. And a lot that stuck with him a lot for the first year. I couldn't work out why. And now, thankfully, I think people are stopping saying that. Uh, he's very offence-minded. I would say that he... To address the naivety point, he is quite calculating in how he does it. I think he knows exactly what game situations take gambles in. And he's also backing the qualities of his team. And, and that's, I like, I'm glad you mentioned about the National League. I felt Dennis Smith, who was a very good manager of ours, got us promoted in 2002-03 by adopting this, a similar approach of we got relegated, but we kept a lot of good players. 
And I think he looked at this, the league and thought, if we attack, sometimes we'll get caught out, but if we attack, we will blow teams away. And that is what happened. We scored a lot of goals and we got promoted comfortably. And we were a great team to watch. This team maybe coincidentally plays the same system, three at the back, but in a very attacking way. So those wide players are attacking players. Dennis Smith's team, those two wide players, were really out-and-out wingers. They did come back and do a defensive job, but they were... Carlos Edwards and Paul Edwards, two real high-class players, very fast. Their primary role was to burst forwards. Paul Edwards was a good crosser of the ball, putting the ball in the box for Andy Morrell, who scored well, his top score in the whole country that year. He got over 40 goals. And on the right-hand side, Edwards was a magnificent Trinidadian international who after he left us went to play in the World Cup in 2006, who was quick, skillful. He could dribble through, he could shoot from distance, and he could cross. So those two players were massive in the way that we played. Very attack-minded approach. And we're similar now. I think Bargson is equally thought, well, I've got such a big budget. I can bring in players like Mullin, like Palmer, like Lee. <laughs> as long as I get the team going and pushing forwards, we can exploit National League defences, surely, and outscore them. He has changed it a bit, hasn't he? When he brought Tony Cliff in, I think he did tighten us up a little bit. Um, that Barnet 7-5 game, I think was maybe the last straw for him and thinking, OK, we can get caught out, though. Yeah, Dover, Barnet, both scored five goals at the race course. That's crazy. Most any team's ever scored at the race course against us is seven. You know, we won both those games, but, wow, <laughs> it was a strange way to win them. So, no, he didn't have a reputation. Quite the opposite, I would say. But I think you sometimes have to be careful of reputations. Because they're created by gossip, often by people who are not quite sh maybe don't bother looking into the facts too closely, but just like to spread around the notion they've got or have heard. And oh, bus taste tales northeast. Which ex Wrexham player in his prime would you put in the squad today, and who would he replace? Well, I'll limit it to players that I've seen. Insofar as obviously Tommy Bamford, who scored two hundred goals in two hundred games, pretty much that guy must have been tasty, but you know, haven't seen him play. Um, I, I'm not so worried about replacement because I think that this current squad is extremely strong and I don't see weak spots. So maybe if I look more at mm, strength and depth, I would quite like to see an extra striker and that obviously opens up the possibility of Gary Bennett, legendary striker in the early 90s, who scored a lot of goals, a heck of a lot of goals as much through sheer bloody-mindedness as anything else. He was determined to score goals. Really strong personality. Tended to turn up in the big games as well. Um, tended to be driven on by the hatred of opposing fans. I always remember a game at Crew, where um, the Crew fans were really having a go at him. And they kept doing it. Every time he touched the ball, he'd get terrific abuse. And they kept doing it. And they kept doing it until he'd scored his third goal. And then they stopped then, to be honest. And so he got the feeling he was driven on by that sort of thing. Very competitive. He'd be a useful bloke to have around. Um, but then again, would he get in ahead of Mullen and Palmer the way they're playing at the moment? If we realistically brought Prime Bennett in now? Maybe not. Um, left back... I love Mendy. He gets injured a bit. And if I was looking at a position maybe to bolster to get us through this season, 
Maybe I'd look at left-back. Alan Dwyer was the left-back in the 1970s. as A striker converted to being a full-back. And he was good defensively. And he loved getting up and down the pitch as well. He could go forwards really effectively. So I quite like the idea of that. I feel slightly left-field that. But I reckon, uh, I reckon that could work. Uh, although having said that, like I said, it's not Chris and McFadden. I think it's great. It's just that as things currently stand... All our other left-back options are injured, and we, we do, I think, it'd be nice if we could rotate McFadden in and out, because Parkinson asks a lot of his wing-backs in terms of um, how much ground they have to cover. Josh Lafferty, when will the new cop be finished? So some quick-fire ones to finish now. When will the new cop be finished? Right, it's supposed to be open for the start of the season after next, and at the moment, they're saying that everything's on track, so hopefully, season after next, we will have it. A Fennel again. What's the situation with Jordan Davis? He'd make a big difference. Totally agree. Um, sadly, though, he got quite nastily injured. And as I understand it, he got close to being fit and then broke down again. But he's now back to the extent that he's running. He's not training with the team yet, but he is back to the extent that he's actually running. So that's good news. And You can see him, I think, when they unveiled a new gym, he was in there. So... Hopefully he'll be back in a little bit. And Kilted Fussy Fan uh, said about the Sheffield United game, at least one penalty for blatant handball in the box. I agree completely. And one goal scored were not properly counted. Uh, this should have been a 5-3 win for Wrexham. How long until VAR comes to FA Cup games? It is in FA Cup games, but only in Premier League grounds. So it's only grounds that can actually... Ha has the facilities, if you will to put all the cameras in the right places. Now, I think part of that also is that you can't do it quickly. You know, I think you have to, you know, over the summer they come in and they sort of calibrate the, all the different cameras to the exact dimensions of the pitch. And I don't think that's something that can be done overnight. So at the moment, it's a technological and practical limitation, if you will. I mean, at Wrexham, I'm quite sure they would be able to do it if they were given enough time. But I mean, you know, some grounds that we go to are very small in the National League level, for example. And you probably would be limited in what you'd be able to do. So there is VAR and FA Cup games, but it's uh, you know only in certain venues. And I, again, just like I said about, I find it odd that you have different rules at different stages of the cup. I find it odd that different games in the cup can have different rules. There was an example, was it last season, where two games happened on the same day. I think it was the quarterfinals, and one of them was. I'm sure it was Swansea and Millwall. The Man City were at Swansea, I think. One game had VAR, the other didn't. And the VAR decision in one game changed the outcome. And then the other game had mistakes that VAR would have eradicated, but didn't have VAR. So I do find it odd a competition can be like that, but that's how it is. Tofa, the locals call the race course Kairas. Right, I better put my tin hat on. Not really. Um... I I want to point out, in case anybody gets angry with me, that my wife is first language Welsh speaker, and I did talk to her about this first. I, I the only times I really hear people talking about the Kairas are when they announce the teams, really, um, and when you know, so club might put stuff out, but not generally. It's it's the race course when people are actually talking. I, I've never, I I don't really think I've ever been in a conversation where someone's called it the Kairas or Kairas. Um, Spitwell idea again um, says that and um, thinks a good Ask Rexon topic would be a brief review of the w history of the women's game in the UK. Quite a lot of intrigue there. 
I totally agree. I don't think I'm the person to give it to you, or at least not without doing a bit of research first. I'm aware of the bare bones of it, and there are some very odd and sexist and dubious stuff uh, that I could tell you about. But right now, I don't think I'm in, I'm qualified. So I'll do a bit of research. I hope that I can come back uh, later on and probably answer your question. The Wrexham Texan, I like that. Can someone explain the circular red card? So when Jebison was sent off against Wrexham on the Sunday, the red card comes out and it's circular. Now, the blind ref has, has answered this perfectly on Twitter, so I'll, I'll merely channel him. Um, two possible reasons, two sort of explanations. Uh, one is the, the different shape means that if you've got both red and yellow cards in the same pocket, you can tell by touch which one you've brought out. And also... If you are colourblind, you can tell which one it is by the shape of it. So those are the two basic reasons, pretty good reasons, I would say, really. It makes sense, doesn't it? Rare example of football actually making alterations, which, which help people. There's plenty that don't. Um, and then Jim in Monticello says, when they replay at Sheffield, will Jebison be allowed to play? The, the, the whole rules of um, discipline are complex, aren't they, in football? As I referred to earlier, a violent act is a three-match ban. Jebison is violent, so he will not be allowed to play because they'll play a game this weekend and then us. So this will be the second game of his three-match ban. There are other weird quirks. I remember answering earlier in Ask Wrexham that, strangely, the discipline system in the FA Cup is separate from the league. So when you get yellows in the FA Cup, they don't count towards your totting up process in the league. Good news for Luke Young, who got to five yellows but one of them was in the FA Cup and they managed to hang on to the point where you don't get suspended for five yellows anymore before getting another booking. However, a red card supersedes that. So Jebison's suspension counts in all competitions. Therefore, he won't be against us. Um, JD Lightning? Now, I'm going to get this completely wrong. Can you shed some light on substitutions in the National League? I'm finding conflicting information. Is it three subs a match, three a half, or five subs in three intervals? With early injuries in the FA Club, how close were we to playing with 10 men? And then she follows that up. PS of the rules, the same for the National League, the Upper Leagues, and the FA Cup. Someone answered it beautifully in a nutshell, and please refer to that. I'll try and go through it. I have a horrible feeling I could make a mistake here. Right, National League definitely is... You're, you can name five substitutes, you can bring on three at any time. That's that. So it's not about per half, that doesn't exist in football at all. Um, but five subs, you can bring on three. Other competitions are different. So in the FA Cup, you can name nine subs, and I want to say you can bring on five. In fact, I do want to say you can bring on five, because you can. But only across three intervals. So you can't, if you've used up... If you brought one sub on... Well, that's a Wrexham. We had a situation there, didn't we? We bring on one sub for Tunnicliffe. We bring on another sub for Hayden. We've only got one more substitution window left now. So, yeah, you're quite right. We brought one more on, uh, Dolby. And then, as a consequence, if there had been another injury, we would have been down to ten men then because we are, we've got two more substitutions allowed, but we've used our three windows up. Premier League, is it... Is it nine or seven in the Premier League, but then the same rules as the FA Cup? So, yeah, that, that's generally it. In the World Cup, you can bring on five, you could bring on five, and you could name your entire squad, couldn't you? So that's twenty-six players. You'd have fifteen subs. 
but still the same three intervals. If a game goes to extra time, you're given an extra interval and an extra player that you can bring on. This is all because of COVID. Before COVID, um, the n- number of players on the bench could vary, but you would allow three subs. But there was an argument that players' conditioning was under threat, and so they allowed more subs. And at the, the moment, some competitions have retained that. Um, cryptic, con- cryptic construct, beg your pardon. How do you manage to teach on a Monday morning after that as a Sheffield game? Do you do it in a whisper or just use a pointer? Um, I have had problems with my throat in the past. In fact, I had to have an operation on my throat about 10 years ago. And brilliantly, the head teacher at the time was very supportive and sent me off to uh, human resources and the occupational health. And they said I had to have a, a loudspeaker. And the only one we had in the school was an enormous amp that was used for big rooms. And so I was teaching with a massive speaker behind me. Um, it was great. The, the best lesson was doing um, Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart, where the beating of the heart uh, rev- drives the murderer mad because he's buried the body under the, the floorboards. And I was able to do the, the heartbeats by tapping on the mic. <laughs> it was great. I'd never felt more alive. So... Yeah, actually, I sometimes do. My throat gets a bit rough, uh, fussy under teaching. I talk too much as a teacher. Surprise, surprise. Um, I must be honest. On Monday, I was more exhausted. <laughs> my throat felt rough after the game, but felt okay the next day. But I was just absolutely shattered. To be honest with you, I think the emotion of it all, and the fact that we had technical problems beforehand. So I'd spent about three hours on edge. <laughs> I think that's what it was. I was. I was just tired out on the Monday. But I got through it. Hey. I think that's it, is it? No, it isn't. Daniel Lindahl says, does a loser of a replay get prize money or do they split pot start in a later round? No, no, there's prize money all the way back to the very early preliminary rounds, way before we enter. The competition starts before our league season with tiny little clubs playing against each other and there are different... There are prize money pots at each level so yeah yeah we're guaranteed an amount and we'll get more if we go through but we're guaranteed an amount for getting this far so and it's pretty generous as well uh daniel very sporting if we just said sad if sheffield united come away with nothing next tuesday oh hang on hey, hey, hey nice and then also the point of making also no more replays after this round correct i think i'm right there. there's no replays next round there might be in the after oh, after it you know what i should probably check my facts before answering these questions shouldn't i um, John Tripp, oh yes, this is the the final one, isn't it? Yeah, I like this one. I like a bit of etymology to finish off. John Tripp asks, why are FA Cup matches called ties? Short quick answer, don't know. Um, it's just the word we use. Um, it's interesting sort of in dialect, isn't it, terms. Uh, I'm very aware of it when commentating that North American sports fans will, will use different phraseology to British sports fans. So in the US, Canada, you would talk about a tie game, wouldn't you? So if a game was level, it's a tie. In Britain, we we, we don't do that. We don't use it in that context. We use it in terms of a, of a match. Um, I did look at the etymology. It is an old English word. It's been has morphed into the word tie. And it may well be just the idea of two things being tied together. So it's a tie. These two teams are brought together. But yeah, in Britain, a tie is a match. Except 
in some sports, I mean, okay, familiar with boxing, the rare occasion when the, the points are level, it's a tie. In Britain, we would tend to call that a draw. So if things are level, we call it a draw. Obviously, in boxing, it's a tie. And the, the other obvious exception in British sports is cricket. Um, cricket is a game, essentially, and this will sound stupid, but it does make sense, I promise you. If the game can't be concluded in the length of time allotted, it's a draw. So basically, neither side won. If, however, and this is very rare, the scores are exactly level and the game is concluded, it's a tie. Now, just to explain how rare this is, test cricket, the main form of cricket, uh, started in the 1880s, has been played continuously apart from the World Wars ever since. And there have been two ties, two in test cricket. So a tie is a phenomenally rare result, but they can happen. So... Yeah, we, we rarely call even games ties. Um, there's other differences. Some are quite subtle, like uh, calling a, a, what we would call a pitch. North American fans would normally call a field. Because uh, a pitch is something in baseball, isn't it? You would use pitch in cricket, actually, in terms of where you put the ball, when the bowler puts it. The ball is pitched up, um, but... Not in this, yeah, it's very clear where you use this in Britain, which one you're referring to. Um, <clears throat> sorry, um, in North America, you would talk more about the half, whereas we talk about half time. Um, there's lots of them. I might do a, I have to do a special one just on that for Ask Wrexham, won't I? That, that's really giving the people what they don't want. Anyway, I'm finished. I should probably scarpa, shouldn't I? It's been a pleasure chatting to you as always, and well. Keep following all our good stuff. And up the, up the town. I'm Mark Griffiths from Wrexham AFC. And I can't say up the town properly. What was wrong with me then? This is the Final Whistle Podcast from the Wrexham AFC media team.